I heard some chuckles out there from the marriage uh, promo. Any, any men out there that can relate to that? Yeah, okay, me too. Today I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a passage, kind of a long passage, but it needs to go together. It's 20 to 35. And here's the question. Who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? I mean, is it possible that I could be welcomed into the very family of Jesus? Now these are the questions that we have got to answer. Everybody has to answer these questions. And so... Um, how you answer them, are gonna, it's going to determine your life and your eternal destiny. Nothing is more important, and so many people are working to push off a solid answer to these questions. You know, I think the best way that we can understand who Jesus is, to me, is by looking at the testimonies and the lives of people who, who have been changed because they put their faith and trust in Jesus. Bill Moore grew up in poverty. He got drunk one time and shot a man for $5,000. He ended up on death row. Lee Strobel, in his book, A Case for Faith, writes about meeting Bill. On death row, he is visited by two guys because God prompts people to go visit people in prison. And they, they told him, Bill, there is a man, Jesus, who loves you. He gave his life on a cross. He died for you. He went to death row for you. Nobody had ever told Bill about Jesus before. He'd been sitting on death row for years, and he turned his life over to Jesus, and it changed him so much. Changed the darkness and the bitterness and the hatred inside of him so much that other people began to be drawn to him. People started meeting Jesus through this guy on death row. He became known as the peacemaker on death row. His cell block was the safest place in the penitentiary because so many people were coming to Christ because of Bill Moore. Churches found out about this. And when people needed counseling, no kidding, churches started sending people to the penitentiary to get counseling for Bill Moore. Can you imagine? You call the church and say, I think I need some counseling, and we say, great. What we want you to do is go to death row and visit a prisoner there by the name of Bill Moore, but that's exactly what began to happen. Bill Moore changed so much that he won the love of the family of the man he killed. It changed him so much over the 16-year period that all kinds of people wrote letters for him. Eventually, the authorities not only commuted his sentence, which was unprecedented, but they paroled him. Bill Moore now serves as head of a congregation in a couple of housing projects in a desperately poor area. When Lee Strobel met him, he asked, Bill, what in the world turned your life around? Was it a new medication? Was it a time... Uh, of a rehab, with a rehab group? Was it a new approach to counseling? Bill said, Lee, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was Jesus Christ. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? Some of you sitting out here are a testimony to the power of Jesus. And for so many people, that seems just so abstract and hard to grab a hold of but it is a more profound reality than people who've never met Jesus could ever know. Jesus 
um, matters. In the book of Mark, Mark begins with this idea that the eternal transcendent God who created the heavens and the earth and the first human beings from the dust of the ground and breathed into them the breath of life and they became a living soul. And Mark begins his gospel by pointing out the conclusion of his entire book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, there we have it. Jesus, according to Mark, was the Son of God. Now, I'm here to tell you, that is a complicated thing to wrap your mind around. If it's hard for you, welcome to the club. If it seems impossible, yes, it does. But is it true? Mark, throughout his gospel, says, here are the reasons why you need to believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, this is what's going on. Let's read it together. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. I mean, there was so many people around, they couldn't even eat. But when his own people heard about this, that's speaking of his family, his mother and his brothers and his sisters and they went, they, went, they went out to lay hold of him, for he, they said he's out of his mind. His family members are afraid for him. We think he's lost his mind. It goes on. So here's one opinion. Jesus was a man that kind of lost his mind. No, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said... He, is, he has Beelzebub, and, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. I mean, they couldn't deny the miracles he was doing. And the scribes hated Jesus, and the religious leaders were determined to get rid of Jesus and to discredit him. And so what, the only thing they could do is make up stuff and lie about Jesus. So he, he called them to himself. He says, okay, guys, come here. And he said to them in, par, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first builds, uh, binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatsoever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is never, uh, never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mothers came and standing outside sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister, and my mother. So let's unpack this. Several things are going on here. 
First of all, this passage is all about the identity of Jesus. That's what this discussion is. I mean, the family has come, and his brothers are saying, he's lost it. He's beside himself. He's going to be crushed by the crowd. You know, we think the multitudes is a good thing. Uh, however, the multitudes became a scary thing in the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus even told his disciples, I need you to get a, a, a boat ready because if the, the multitude comes, I could be crushed by the multitudes. So there was a physical danger element when the multitude surrounded Jesus. So get me a boat, I can step into the boat and we can get away from the crowd and, and not be destroyed. The multitudes were so many they, they couldn't even eat lunch. Okay, the multitude, that could be in some ways a problem, and Jesus acknowledges that. I think his family is concerned. And then the scribes from Jerusalem are sent. I mean, this is the brain trust of Israel. These men are part of the elite rulers, religious rulers of the day. They've been sent on a reconnaissance mission. You know what? They already knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to kill Jesus. That has already been declared in this chapter. They wanted to get rid of him. So they're looking for ways to discredit him and trip him up. And the issue is the identity of Jesus. And in this passage, some have summarized it to give the three options as you identify Jesus. Number one, he's a lunatic, he's out of his mind. Number two, he's a liar, he doesn't represent God. He, he is from, he's using the power of Satan himself. And then the third option is this one, or he actually is the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, when I was in high school, I shared the gospel with some of my friends. And I loved my friends. And I would always try to find a way to kind of nudge the conversation in that direction. And I remember one time I was talking to uh, my friends and this one girl in particular with tears in her eyes. She looked at me and she said, Eddie, I mean, I can accept that Jesus is a good teacher and a, and a moral man. I just can't accept that he is God. I don't think I can ever accept that to be true. You know, I look back now, my, my heart breaks. I, I, you know, thanks to Facebook from time to time, there's some kind of a little connection. And every time I see those connections, I just pray, God, I know it's really a tough discussion for her. But I pray that she would somehow be able to come to understand that you are, in fact, the Son of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. You are our great Redeemer and Savior our champion. C.S. Lewis <clears throat> tries to address this issue in his book, Mere Christianity. And um, the one thing that he, he, he is trying to come against is this idea that I, I, I don't want to say he's a lunatic because that's pretty strong. I don't even want to say he's a liar because, you know, we all want to be sweet and nice people, right? Do you? I hope so. Um, but some people are just not ready to call him Lord because that means you bow down before him and you acknowledge that God, my entire being and life, it is from you and I will be held accountable before you. And, and so I, I, need to, 
I need to make things right with you, and, and people aren't ready to do that. And so we come up with this last option, and that is that he's a good teacher, respect him, he's great, he's right up there with, uh, you know, Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept, accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a, of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut, up, shut him up for a fool. You can't spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can, you, can, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He would not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic or a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. The first thing that we need to look at here is his family, they thought he was out of his mind. Has your family ever thought you were out of your mind? <laughs> you know, my wife and I, when we got married, we made this deal because we had observed a lot of family dynamics. And she says to me, all right, Eddie, let's make a deal here. You know what? There are people, maybe some in our family, that can get into their crazy mode. And so let's make a promise to each other that if we're losing it, and we're kind of acting a little crazy, we're not gonna let it slide. We're gonna call each other out. So we still do that. One of the most unsettling responses to Jesus is his own family. Now, scripture is pretty clear that while Mary delivered Jesus and had conceived and delivered him as a virgin that Joseph did not have any normal relations with Mary until after the birth of Jesus, which implies that they lived then as a married couple in the ordinary way married couples would live. And the scripture even names the children that were the product of that union. So here are some of the names of Jesus' technically his half-brothers and sisters. Uh, the sisters are not particularly named in Scripture, although there's some history that would, would give some names. But here are the names that we know from Scripture. Uh, his brother was James, Joseph, 
Simon, Judas, also referred to as Jude. Matthew and Mark mention his sisters, but neither the number or the names. Now, if you can imagine growing up with Jesus, that had to be a very unique experience. Jesus was perfect in behavior and character. Jesus always listened to his mom and his parents, and he obeyed them. I like to imagine that Mary would have said to her children, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Which then, of course, she would catch herself, and she would just bury that because she knew why. There was no doubt, in some ways, the siblings of Jesus would have watched Jesus be who he was. As they grew older, there was something very different about Jesus. In fact, one day, when he was 12 years old, the family went to Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus is now considered sort of a man on his own as a 12-year-old, okay? And as they're coming back home, and they've traveled a day or so, they say, hey, I haven't seen Jesus. Joseph, have you seen Jesus? No. Mary, have you seen? I don't know where Jesus is. Is, hello, come on, let's, James, Jude, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? I, I don't think he's here. Can you imagine being Joseph? I have one job in this life. I am the guardian of the son of God, and I've lost him. Can you imagine how panicked you would be? They finally go back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus. He's 12 years old. He is in the temple. And he's having a serious discussion with the scholars and religious leaders of the day. He's a 12-year-old. Now, I'm telling you that the leaders of of the temple and the the, the scholars of the day would not have engaged Jesus in a two-day discussion if there had not been some substance to what he was saying and teaching And his parents say, Jesus, you got to come with us. He says, don't you know I should be about my father's business? And they all knew he didn't mean Joseph. But then he says he, he, he submitted himself to his parents. And he returned home with them. I have no doubt that Mary, even in this moment when they go to kind of rescue Jesus, she never forgot that Jesus was the son of God. I mean, she remembers when the angel came to her as a virgin and said, you're going to conceive a child, and he, would be, he will be the son of God. And, and, and she remembers agreeing to that. And then she, she also remembers how that Joseph, when he learned that she was expecting a baby, that it almost destroyed the prospect of their, their life together. And then Joseph gets visited by an angel. And so Mary has a lot of evidence to prove that Jesus was, in fact, the son of God. And she remembers at his birth, the shepherds came and talked about the sky filling up with an angel chorus. She remembers the wise men that brought gifts. She remembers the emergency uh, departure to Egypt because Herod was planning to kill Jesus and they got out just in time. Uh, And in the silent years in Nazareth, things seemed to become a little bit more normal and manageable. The other children started coming along. Jesus, but when Jesus began to preach, then he, he, he went out and touched people and he healed the sick and he cast out demons and the multitudes increased and increased and increased to the point where they were about to suffocate him and his family comes to rescue him and say, Jesus, I, I, I kind of think this has gone too far. We think he's out of his mind. 
Now, it's not uncommon for crazy people to think that they're God. Did, did you know that? It happens. I mean, there are evil people, and then some people that are just deluded. Some of you may remember Charles Manson, who thought he was God. I mean, there, there are some people that they've they kind of lost their ability to think through things properly. Like, there was this guy in a mental institution. He was laying in his bed, and he kept screaming, I am Napoleon! I am Napoleon! I am Napoleon! A, a guy who came by his room uh, said to him, Hey, listen, you are not Napoleon. That's crazy. Who told you you were Napoleon? And he said, God told me. And that man replied, I did not tell you. Many have claimed to be God, including the great Caesars and the Pharaohs and kings and monarchs. And everybody goes along with it and then they die. And they get buried, and another pharaoh or king or Caesar replaces them, and everybody knows they're not God. Jesus actually came to the most unlikely people in the world to entertain the idea that God had come. They believed that God was one and there was no other God. They didn't even pronounce the name of God or write it out because of their great reverence for the God who created all things, the God who rules heaven and earth and who was holy, holy, holy. People in the Middle in Eastern cultures were accustomed to the idea of multiple gods. Adding one more deity to the pantheon of their gods was not a big deal. But for the Jews, it was unthinkable to even acknowledge or, or entertain the idea that anybody could be God, but God. And Jesus' brothers knew Jesus was unusually good. His perfection and sinlessness was so part of who he was. However, for them to take the next step and to say he actually is God was a step they could not take. So naturally, they said, I think he's out of his mind. Then we have the next Identity that was presented as an option. Jesus is a liar. And the scribes come and they say, well, we can't deny the power he has. Let's, let us proclaim that his power comes from the devil himself. Beelzebub is a term that is used as uh, the, the leader of the demons. And you know what? This still happens today in our public discourse. When you're losing an argument or don't have a reasonable response to the discussion, just make something up. Just lie. And say it with conviction. And repeat and repeat and repeat. I mean, this happens all the time. It, this is not a new thing, by the way. It's been happening since the days of Jesus. Now, Jesus does not let their accusation go unchallenged. Here's his response. He called them and he said to them, okay, just think about what you're saying. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if the house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong men and then he will plunder his house. So Jesus says, your argument makes no sense. It is illogical. And then Jesus tells them what's really happening. 
the strong man has come and he has bound up Satan himself. And he's plundering his house by letting the captives go free. We're in bondage to sin, to death, to evil forces. Jesus says, but I'm stronger. I am mightier than the devil. I have come to bind the strong man. I have come to take on death, disease, poverty, hunger, and joking, and drunk, uh, death, disease, poverty, hunger, and injustice. Think of the brokenness of our world. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. We didn't need education. We needed deliverance. Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus declares in this moment, I want you to know, I am the divine warrior of prophecy who was predicted to come and set aside the devil. In Genesis 3, after paradise was lost, and the created world began to unravel, and evil poisoned everything there was, and the serpent had deceived human beings and separated them from God, and they began to feel feelings they had never felt before. They felt fear, they felt shame and anger. Uh, there was violence, disease, death. It was all unleashed, and the world has been in this sense of crumbling darkness ever since. And yet even in that moment, God says, serpent, your victory is temporary because one mightier than you is coming who will tie you up and plunder the kingdom and release the captives. Genesis 3, 15. This is, where, this, is, this is declared in response to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head but you shall bruise his heel. How do you kill a snake? You gotta go for the head. So the strong man will be bound, even as Jesus, our champion, was wounded. Mark is describing throughout his gospel this mighty one from God. Jesus is stronger than death when he raises people from the dead. Jesus is stronger than sin when he forgives sins. Jesus is stronger than disease when he touches and heals the lepers and the sick and the infirm. Jesus is stronger than hunger when he feeds people. Jesus is the mighty one of God who has come to take back the fallen world. And how would he do that? He knew he would eventually have to go to a cross and he would die in our place and pay for our sin. First Peter 2, 24 to 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He was not 
empowered by the devil. He was our champion. There is this warning in verse 28 that gets many people's attention. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they say he has an unclean spirit. Now, I just, I just want to say, that I have talked to people that are so afraid that maybe in their lifetime they have uttered a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or they have said something and they are now unforgivable. You know what? Are you, if you're concerned about that, the truth is you haven't done it. What this is talking about, that the scribes, they had come to a conclusion. They didn't have a doubt about who Jesus was. Their, their doubt was cemented in their opinion, and so they were going to prove him wrong, and they declared that he was the opposite of who he was. He's from the devil, not from God. Now, if you notice that the, the half-brothers of Jesus... They were confused. They had doubts about the identity of Jesus, but they were not coming from a place of a foregone conclusion in order to vilify and condemn Jesus. They were in process. Actually, it would last until after the resurrection. Finally, they ultimately did declare that Jesus was in fact Lord. I think one of the most tender parts of the gospel is how Jesus loved his brothers. They were confused. But after the resurrection, we know for a fact that Jesus appears to James. And from that point on, James believed. One of my favorite writers and speakers is a man by the name of Dick Foth. And he actually, during one of his teachings from the book of James, does a soliloquy. Do you, you like that? That's a technical term. But he, he sort of puts himself in the person of James. And he sort of creates a narrative in order to help us understand what might be going on. So he goes and he sits down in a chair, which I'm not going to do because I'm not a good actor like, like him. But he sits down in the chair, and he says, and now I'm James, and he says, shalom. And I'm going to read what he, what he wrote. I've modified parts of it, but here we go. Shalom. This is James speaking about his brother Jesus. I grew up in the hill country in Israel. I grew up in a little town called Nazareth that was just a few hundred, there was just a few hundred people. From my town, if you looked one direction on a clear day, you could see the great city of Jerusalem. And if you looked another direction, you could see a big lake that was sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. James goes on. I came from a good family. It was a righteous family. My father Joseph loved Torah. I can hear him singing Torah. Torah is the first five writings of Moses. I had siblings, Joseph, J Judas, sometimes called Jude and Simon. I had a couple of sisters, Lydia and Anna. They're, we were a tight family who believed in God. As Jewish people, we had one God. The countries around us had lots of gods. Our history was that we kept wandering off to those other gods. The thing is that we were just a small country, and, and there were all of these larger countries more powerful around us. I mean, there was Egypt, 
and we were taken over by Egypt for several hundred years. The Assyrians came down and, and uh, took us. The Babylonians later came and took us over. Now the Romans were in town. We always had this hope that in the story, a Messiah would come, an anointed one would come and set us free and take the boot of the oppressor off of us. We kept thinking about that for a long time. We would sing about the day when Messiah would come and rescue us. My dad was a builder. I did some of that. My older brother did more of that than I did. Did I mention I had an older brother? His name was Jesus. He was sort of a half-brother. He really did the stonemason carpentry thing well. And when they were building something like a, like a door frame or a table, Jesus made sure that the joints were very tight and good. He was very bright. He was a big thinker and thought in conceptual things. I'm more of a, pic, a, a small picture guy. I think, see things more in pictures. Even as a kid, he was so inquisitive. We went to Passover one time. There were so many people who go to Jerusalem for Passover, thousands of people. It would take us days to get there. That time on the way back, Jesus wasn't with us and we had to go all the way back. It took a couple of days to find Jesus and when my parents found him, he was in the temple having big discussions with the scholars. He was only 12 years old. As he got older, he'd go down by the lake, made some friends of some young fishermen. And he became an itinerant teacher. That's what we do in that part of Israel. These itinerant preachers would begin teaching and they would have small groups of people follow them around. My brother Jesus had made some friends with these young fishermen and they would follow them around and he would teach them. We had, he had some very provocative ideas. The word kept coming back to us in Nazareth that when our brother speaks, he speaks with authority. I mean, that was pretty good. Then he started touching people that were sick and they were healed. Then that when that happened, the religious leaders started pushing back. We as his siblings would hear, Jesus, hear that Jesus was doing these things and they would tell us that this Jesus from Nazareth, and we knew that that was our Jesus because it was a small town of Nazareth and Jesus, though a common name, the one from Nazareth, he was our brother. But it kind of freaked us out when the word came back that maybe some people thought he was the Messiah. We thought he's gotta be out of his mind. So my mother and my brothers and I went to find him and he was teaching and there were so many people around him we couldn't even get close to him. Then the word made, it, made its way through the crowd that they um, told Jesus that you're mother and brothers have come to see you and he answered who is my mother and brothers then he said that my family my mother my brothers are the ones who do the will of God and that split our family apart I love Jesus my brother but I did not believe he was the Messiah that was so far out until the religious leaders conscripted conspired with the political leaders to kill him and when they crucified him in that gruesome death that is only reserved for the worst criminals, that just broke my heart. It broke the heart of my mother and all of our family. And then three days later, as we were grieving in our confusion, having watched his horrendous death, trying to figure out what all has gone on, 
word came to us that Jesus was alive. He was back like he predicted. And I couldn't believe it until one day Jesus found me. And there in the flesh, he was standing before me. I couldn't believe it. Tears were streaming down my face and I can remember just hugging him. And from that moment on, I believed. And then a few weeks later, he went back to his heavenly father and things began to happen that we called uh, in what was called the early church. And then persecution started and they killed our friend Stephen and they killed other people. Our group was scattered all over the Middle East. I was the leader in the early church and after some time, there were so many strains and economics that were going on, bad droughts and a lack of things that this little congregation started arguing and fighting and pulling apart and they weren't seeking wisdom in the way they should. They were losing their sense of who they were and I felt like I should write them a letter and so I wrote this letter. It's the book of James. You know that the book of Jude in our Bible is written by Jesus' other brother. I mean, when these two brothers begin their writings, they don't say they were that brother of Jesus. You know what they say? James, the slave of Jesus. Jude, the slave or bondservant of Jesus. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to experience confusion. If it's an open confusion and an open doubt seeking for God to reveal himself, that's what the brothers experienced. The scribes and religious leaders, on the other hand, no. Their firm decision that Jesus was not God. And that was the end. And that's an awful end. Because if you refuse the testimony of the Holy Spirit as it comes through the Scripture, there's nothing more to give you. Either we will decide He is Lord or He is not. And you know what? I'm here to tell you that if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the promise is for eternal life and salvation. But if you refuse him, it is eternal death and a place Jesus describes as hell. Everybody in this room will make a choice to postpone your decision is to decide to refuse Jesus. Maybe God brought you here today because he, he wants you to just decide, decide. Say, but I'm confused. I, I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain. The, the gap between I'm not 100% certain and receiving Jesus is called faith. I know enough to decide. I believe Jesus was the Son of God. 
I need a savior like him. I want a champion like him. I want a deliverer like him. I want the hope of eternal life. I want to be forgiven. So I'm going to receive him. You know, can you imagine what it was like for James to take communion? And that's what we're going to do now. And, and I, want to, I want to walk us through three things. Number one, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Number two, we need to examine ourselves. Taking communion is not some kind of a passive, frivolous thing. First Corinthians talks about the need to examine. There's warnings attached to this. So here's the deal. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, taping communion would not really do you any good. But if you would in this moment pray to Jesus and receive him. In fact, would you bow your heads in case there's someone in this room who would like to pray?